You're listening to TIP. On today's show, I chat with Savannah Arroyo, also known as the Net Worth Nurse, who is a full-time registered nurse and real estate investor in Los Angeles, California. She uses her skills as a leader in the healthcare operations to manage multifamily syndications and helps busy medical professionals create passive income through real estate investing. Savannah is working on bigger deals and raising money from other investors, which are two things you might not be doing yet or may never even do. But even if that's the case, what you can take away from this is that Savannah is relatively new in real estate and she's already having great success. And you can gain a lot from her knowledge and process on how to deal with limiting beliefs in real estate. So just because she's working on bigger deals and raising money, don't think this episode isn't applicable to you. I hope you guys enjoy this conversation with Savannah Arroyo. Let's dive in. You're listening to Real Estate Investing by the Investors Podcast Network, where your host, Robert Leonard, interviews successful investors from various real estate investing niches to help educate you on your real estate investing journey. Hey, everyone. Welcome to the Real Estate 101 Podcast. I'm your host, Robert Leonard. And with me today, I have Savannah Arroyo. Welcome to the show, Savannah. Hi, thank you. I'm super excited to be here. Tell us a bit about your background and how you got into real estate investing. Yeah, definitely. I grew up in Northern California. So I ended up going to Sacramento State University for my nursing degree. And then after I graduated, I worked in a couple different specialties within nursing. I was just naturally gravitating towards leadership positions. I was taking on different project initiatives and different hospitals I was working at. And so pretty quickly after I went back to school and I got my master's degree in nursing leadership and administration. I have since moved down to Los Angeles, California. And right now I oversee multiple departments at a hospital here in LA. I got started real estate investing after I had my second daughter. My husband and I really just started looking for different ways to start growing our wealth, creating multiple streams of income. We didn't want to be so dependent on our W-2 jobs. We wanted a little bit more flexibility when it came to spending time with our daughters. And we we're looking into creating different streams of income to make that happen. And real estate was really just a perfect fit. We started buying single family homes to begin with. And then afterwards, we fell so in love with it that we wanted to create a real estate business. And right now, we're doing multifamily syndications. There are a lot of different things that you could have invested in or started to generate more income streams. You could have started a side hustle. You could have invested in the stock market. I mean, there are so many different things. Why specifically real estate? I had always heard about real estate. I mean, I think they say, I forget the percentage, but how many millionaires or billionaires own real estate? Like, it's really just such an essential I've been discovering of like really creating that long term wealth. I mean, it's not a get rich quick thing by all means at all, but. It's really just with the different strategies within real estate, there's a lot less risk and higher return. So really just educating myself. I mean, primarily on YouTube when I first got started and then just listening to podcasts and reading books, it really just felt like the perfect fit for what we were looking for. When you were first getting educated, you just mentioned YouTube and podcasts. What were the specific resources? Were there certain books or YouTube channels or even podcasts that you listened to that really helped you out? 
Definitely. So bigger pockets on YouTube was one of the biggest things, the rich dad, poor dad quadrants that he kind of shows in terms of like being an investor in that bottom quadrant and creating your own wealth that way, a business owner as well. So those were the big YouTube videos, Graham Stevens. And then for the podcast, it was again, bigger pockets, Michael Blanc, reading books. It was Bill Murray's Crushing in an Apartment, Robert Kiyosaki's book again, some of the bigger pocket books, really just a plethora of real estate investment tools. A lot of people get stuck in paralysis by analysis and feel like they don't know enough to get started. At what point in your education process did you know that you were ready to get started and do your first deal? I think pretty early on. And I think that was really just from listening to these podcasts. I was on maternity leave at the time. So I'd listen to like three or four hours of podcasts a day. And I'm one of those people that listen to them on like one and a half, two times speed. But I would listen to them and get so motivated by other people's stories. Like there are people from all walks of life, all different backgrounds, all different skill sets, especially the Bigger Pockets podcast, which is a really broad podcast. Just it felt like anyone can do it. So I was listening to those on a regular basis and getting so inspired that we really started taking action immediately and started kind of getting organized in terms of like setting goals for ourselves, like three to five year goals, 10 year goals, started creating an action plan of what we needed to be doing to get started, kind of right now. And after we bought the single family homes, and then we were switching into multifamily and just thinking about syndicating and syndicating as you know, pooling together resources from multiple investors to buy these apartment complexes. And we felt that would be so awesome. We love working in teams. We had kind of generated some interest from friends and family who are maybe interested in investing with us, but didn't want to do a lot of the heavy lifting. And my husband and I wanted to do a lot of the heavy lifting. So it was really a perfect fit, the syndication model. And as we started looking through it more, just kind of like the legalities that go behind it and the underwriting that takes place and like the business plan and strategies, we ended up investing in a coaching program. And for us, I mean, we both work full-time jobs. We have a three-year-old and a one-year-old at home. For us, it was super important to invest in a coaching program to have extra set of eyes looking over all our underwriting, making sure that we weren't missing anything, that we weren't going to make a huge drastic expensive mistake with our money and our friends and family's money. So we ended up investing in that. And that really gave us the confidence to start submitting those offers. As we were underwriting deals and looking at different properties, it was helpful to have a coach with 20 plus years experience looking at our underwriting and saying, yeah, this is a good deal. Like You should submit an offer. And that really gave us the confidence to take that first step. I'd like to learn a little bit more about that coaching program that you invested in? Because a lot of people ask me if it's worth it to buy coaching programs or into masterminds or things like that. So I'd love to learn a little bit more in terms of maybe the cost and exactly how it all worked. Were you sending him deals and you guys were kind of one-on-one or what exactly did that look like? And you don't have to share his name or the course or you know any of the specifics like that if you don't want to, but I'd love to get as much detail about it as you're willing to share. Yeah, definitely. So Honestly, when we started looking up coaching programs, we didn't vet out a lot of coaching programs. We ended up just kind of going with one of the first ones that we were looking into. And it was a $30,000 price point. And for us, knowing that you can easily make a $30,000 mistake in real estate, for us, that price point was worth it. We felt that investing in a coach could potentially save us like a $30,000 mistake, essentially. 
And so we ended up doing it. We're super motivated. We didn't really need that accountability piece. I know a lot of people that invest in these coaching programs specifically for the accountability piece, but we had that already. We had each other. We're really motivated in terms of taking steps. So that piece was there for us. We were also looking into ways kind of just to create like more resources within kind of our network because as you switch, I mean, from doing single family, we're used to doing these deals on our own. And then as you switch into multifamily and specifically syndications, it's very much a team sport. I mean, I heard people say that and I was like, okay, I got to develop a team. But like now after doing multiple deals, you realize how important it is that you have great relationships with brokers, that you have a great lawyer that you're working with, a property management team. And that's super important to kind of create that team. And these coaching programs usually have like some sort of network, like a Slack channel that you can go on and kind of create connections and relationships with other people who are looking to do kind of what you're doing. So that was a helpful part of the coaching program as well. And we really primarily used it for the underwriting piece. So looking at the spreadsheets for analyzing and underwriting these multifamily syndications are pretty intense. I mean, they're like eight different tabs, all these formula-driven kind of sequences in them. And so for us, it was helpful to have someone, you know, look at, okay, like how do you evaluate taxes? Like what realistically are you able to increase rents every month? Like what other costs and expenses do you need to take into consideration? And honestly, at that point, it's just practice. Like you're practicing it over and over and over the underwriting piece of it. And then having a one-on-one coach session where you're able to sit down and look through your underwriting and take into consideration things that maybe you're missing, that was a really helpful piece for us as well. I want to talk a bit more about your syndications. But before we get to that point, what was your very first deal? It sounds like it might have been a single family. How did that come about? Our first deal was a new build townhome, a build-to-rent project in Atlanta, Georgia. We're in Los Angeles, California. So the price point to entry is just a little bit higher here. So we naturally started researching different markets to invest in. And we fell in love with Georgia, Atlanta, Georgia for a lot of different reasons. And so we were originally looking to do the Burr method over there, which most people know you're buying a property really below market value. It really needs like a full renovation. So B, buying it, R, renovating, renting it out. So putting a renter in there. So then you start collecting that monthly rent refinancing with the goal of essentially pulling out all the capital that you put into it because now the value is a lot higher. So you're pulling all that equity out and repeating it. So it's a great way if you have a fixed amount of income or capital to really snowball and scale. And so for us, that was like the perfect plan. But then when it came to overseeing a renovation across the country, for us, that was going to be very stressful. We were a little bit nervous about it. And although we did start submitting offers and we're looking at properties pretty heavily for a few months and had a good realtor over there, we just, when it came down to it, we didn't want it to be a very stressful experience. We didn't want to have something happen for us to like ruin our taste of real estate. And so we ended up going with a new build townhome project, which is cash flowing. It's a really good deal. We were able to get in with a 15% down payment and buy two of them in the same community. And it was really just an awesome way to get our feet wet and start collecting some of that cash flow every month. And then it allowed us when we switched into multifamily to go as we were starting to have conversations with brokers. Now we had this experience behind us, even if it was just a couple single family homes, it still made a difference when we started having those conversations with brokers about multifamily deals. Was it two single family deals that you did before you made the jump to multifamily? Yes. 
What made you make that jump? Why were you done with single family? Why didn't you continue to scale? You had two things that were working. Why not continue to do that rather than jump to an entirely different model? Just because of how we bought them, like with the Burr method, when we were going to do it, we were essentially going to pull out all that capital and keep going. But because we bought the new build townhomes, our capital was now in these deals and we didn't have another resource of capital to pool to keep investing. And since then, we've become very educated on different ways that you can tap into different capital in your life, second mortgage, pulling out retirement, tapping into self-directed IRA accounts, and even like life insurance policies. Like now we're super well-versed and tapping at all these different equity sources, but then we didn't have it. And so we were like, okay, we did those two deals and we wanted to keep going. We didn't want to stop and wait around for another year to collect enough money for another down payment. So we started looking into ways that we could scale and create a business. And we found multifamily. And then as we just started researching it and looked into like what it took to do a multifamily deal, it was just so aligned with our skill sets and what we do with our W-2 job. Like right now in the hospital, I oversee operations for multiple departments. So I'm used to process improvement, working on a lot of different projects at once, like communication piece is huge for me. So when it came to running a real estate business, we felt it was very feasible and would be a really great fit for us. Did you sell those two single family properties to put that capital into a multifamily syndication? We did not. Those were kind of a buy and hold strategy with those ones. And so we did not. We ended up learning about tapping into your retirement account under the CARES Act. So last year in 2020, due to everything going on with COVID, you could tap into your retirement. And this I really just learned from listening to podcasts and being really emerged in different real estate networking groups and that sort of thing like in the community. And I heard a lot of people who were tapping into their retirement accounts penalty-free under the CARES Act. And so when we started researching it more, and we obviously talked to our tax professional about this, but I mean, we had a big chunk of money sitting in our retirement account because since we started working, we were putting 15 to 20% of our paychecks towards it every month. So we were really saving primarily for this retirement. And then as we started evaluating our investment goals and kind of just our life goals moving forward. We wanted to have more access to that capital now. We didn't want it to be sitting somewhere that we couldn't touch till we were 65. Like It just wasn't really feasible with what we wanted to do in our lifestyle. So it was a good decision for us to tap into that retirement penalty-free. You do have to pay taxes on it, but it's over a three-year period. So that's kind of how we got the capital to do our second deal. Let's take a quick break and hear from today's sponsors. Hey guys, about a year and a half ago, my wife and I got married and one of the most stressful parts of our relationship has been trying to join our finances together. We all know that money issues are a leading cause of divorce, but Monarch, the top rated personal finance app, has built in collaboration features so that you can invite your partner at no extra cost. Together, you can see all your finances, collaborate on your budget and get insights on your cash flow and recurring transactions. It's the easiest way to manage your household finances. Unlike other personal finance apps that we tried, Monarch's simple, intuitive design makes it so easy to set up, customize, and use. Monarch is obsessed with constantly improving the product, and they release updates every two weeks and allow customers to submit suggestions, vote on requested features, and view the product roadmap. And most importantly, they never sell your data to third parties or show you ads. After trying out Monarch for myself, my wife and I understand why it's a top-rated personal finance app. And right now, listeners on this show will get an extended 30-day free trial when you go to monarchmoney.com/mi. 
That's M-O-N-A-R-C-H-M-O-N-E-Y.com slash M-I for your extended 30-day free trial. Go to monarchmoney.com slash M-I for an extended 30-day free trial. Do you guys ever feel overwhelmed with all that's going on in the markets and feel like you just can't keep up with the day-to-day news headlines? Today's show sponsor, Yahoo Finance, is my go-to solution to keeping up with today's top news and stay informed with what is happening globally. With Yahoo Finance, I'm able to see the biggest trends and biggest movers in the stock market, what is happening with interest rates, major geopolitical events, and much more. If it wasn't for Yahoo Finance, I would have no idea that Tesla is laying off 10% of their staff or why iPhone shipments are down 9% year over year. Yahoo Finance also has a number of other cool features, including a tool that lets you link in all of your investment accounts, analyst ratings and independent research, as well as the ability to create customized charts. Yahoo Finance is one of my favorite tools I use in my investing toolkit, and it's what I use each morning to kick off my day and stay in the loop with what's happening in the markets. Join more than 90 million monthly users today and get comprehensive financial news and analysis at yahoofinance.com. The number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com. Today's show is sponsored by public.com. That's where you can earn 5.1% APY with a high yield cash account. While we can't say for certain it's the highest interest rate out there, we can say this. It's a higher rate than Robinhood, a higher rate than SoFi, a higher rate than Marcus, a higher rate than Wealthfront, a higher rate than Betterment, frankly, a higher rate than Capital One, a higher rate than Ally, a higher rate than Barclays, a way higher rate than Bank of America and Chase, a higher rate than Citi, Wells Fargo, Discover, and it's a higher rate than American Express too. So, If you want to start earning 5.1% APY on your cash, check out public.com. We can't say it's the highest interest rate, but it's pretty damn up there. This is a paid endorsement for public investing, 5.1% APY as of March 26, 2024, and is subject to change. A high-yield cash account is a secondary brokerage account with public investing member of FINRA-SIPC. Funds from this account are automatically deposited into a partner bank where they can earn a variable interest and are eligible for FDIC insurance. Neither Public Investing nor any of its affiliates is a bank. U.S. only. Learn more at public.com slash disclosures slash high dash yield dash account. All right, back to the show. When you did that second deal and it being a multifamily syndication, how did you know you were ready for that step? A multifamily syndication is a big step up from doing a single family house. So it was two properties, but really one deal under your belt. How did you make that leap and how did you know you were ready? So like I mentioned before, the coaching program was a huge piece in that. But honestly, it really comes down to education and mindset. I mean, if you educate yourself on something enough, I mean, I've learned that in my nursing career and just different things I've done in my life. If you educate yourself enough, it eliminates a lot of the risk that you would have going into something new that you've never done before. So for us, it was really that education piece of reading books. We were attending webinars, listening to podcasts, connecting with other people who are doing what we were wanting to do, having conversations with our coach, and making sure that we were really considering all possibilities when moving into multifamily syndications. And then the mindset piece of being able to take risks to encounter new territories. I mean, that's something that I've just kind of done professionally throughout my career and my life, just really strong-willed in terms of like kind of law of attraction stuff, like setting my mind to doing something. And I mean, if you're really specific on your goals and what you want out of life, I mean, for us, it was like, okay, in five years, we want to move my husband into a full-time real estate professional. 
we want to have the flexibility to be able to take our daughters to soccer practice and pick them up from school. Like we need to be in a position where I can work part time. And so our goals and our whys were so strong and we knew what we needed to take to get there. So like five years, we were like, okay, we need to own this amount of multifamily deals at five years. Okay. So what do we need to do at three years to make that happen? What do we need to do in our first year of real estate investing to get to that point? Because we were so emotionally invested in our why behind our goals, and then we had an action plan to get there. It was a pretty easy blueprint in terms of like what steps we needed to be taking on a daily basis. Did you buy that first multifamily syndication in Atlanta where you already had those properties and kind of already developed a little bit of a team? No, we ended up buying it in Oregon. I have family in Oregon. And when we first started learning about multifamily and practicing our underwriting, we were just looking at a bunch of different markets to just get practice. And we were looking in Oregon because we have family there. We know the market and just kind of curious more than anything. But we ended up creating an amazing relationship with a broker in that time. I mean, a young, hungry broker. He was ready to get deals done, was sending us really good deals. And as we were underwriting that first one, it was a 12 unit up there at a million dollar price point. We were like, oh, I think we can do this. And so we ended up pulling the trigger for that first deal up there. And how are you finding other deals that you've done? Are you relying on that same broker? Are you going into different markets? And what resources are you finding to actually find those deals? So for us, it's been really that broker, that first broker that we met. I mean, we've since done two more syndication deals with him. He continues to send us really good deals. And they're all up in Oregon right now. And although we do consider other markets, I mean, we still look in Georgia, Reno, Nevada, a couple other markets. We have relationships with brokers there. And that's how we're getting the majority of our deals. Although we'll occasionally look on different websites, I mean, even LoopNet, just to look to kind of see what the inventory looks like out there and just to see what people have to offer. How did you find that broker in the first place? Marcus and Millichap. He's a Marcus and Millichap broker. And I've listened to so many podcasts who are like, don't go with Marcus and Millichap or their pro formas are always out of control. But we were really just trying to find OMs, the operating memorandum. Like it has all the financials so you could start underwriting deals. And we were just going on websites trying to find these OMs so that we could keep practicing doing our underwriting. And we found him I, through Marcus and Millichap or LoopNet and then got his contact information and started talking to him about the deal. And I know for a lot of people to get started, there's a huge hurdle in terms of like not having the experience and getting brokers to take you seriously. But because we got on the phone and we were really specific about what we were looking for in the area, just gave him specifics and like the price point, unit size, value add components. He felt like we knew what we were talking about. And he never asked us our years of experience or kind of how many deals we've done. In other markets, I mean, we've talked to probably 50 brokers at this point. Like other brokers will definitely ask you your experience. And if you tell them you've never done a multifamily deal, maybe that don't take you as seriously. But then that's not a stopping point. It's just on to the next one or either keeping that conversation going to get them to take you seriously or moving on to someone that can kind of better develop that relationship. So really at this point, all our deals have been sourced from that same broker. For that first one, did you end up purchasing it for $1 million? Yes, we did. And what did the numbers look like on that? Did you have to put 25% down, 15%? Was it a burr and you were able to take out a bunch of capital, even though it's a bigger multifamily? How did all the numbers work? So that was a $1 million price point, 12 units. It was a very strong value add. 
So it was an older gentleman who was selling it. He owned a few different properties in the area and he was 1031-ing almost all of them to go buy land down in San Diego. So he was motivated to sell. I think it was his smallest multifamily deal. So he didn't really prioritize it. It kind of sat on the back burner. Rents were 25% below market. There was a few out of control expenses. He kept very good care of CapEx. So the roof was good, different big spending items like that, like the HVAC, all that stuff was pretty good in good shape. But the rents were below market and some of the expenses were out of control. So we could go into this property and increase the rents, decrease those expenses and get great returns for our investors. We still have that deal. We raised money from four different people, friends and family to get into it. And yeah, we're just continuing to carry out a business plan on that one. Was the asking price a million as well? Or were you able to negotiate it down from the asking price to your purchase price of a million? It was a million asking price. This one was on market, I believe. It was $1 million asking price. And it was good. We made it work with our numbers. We weren't really interested in lowballing people and going back and forth with negotiations. We felt comfortable submitting a full offer price. What we did do is we submitted a personalized letter with our offer. And so we put a picture of our family, my husband and I, and our two daughters. And we just wrote a letter to the seller just saying like, why we wanted to buy this apartment building. We own single family homes. We wanted to get into multifamily, really just to provide time freedom and flexibility with our children as they grow up. We wanted to be not stuck in a job for 40 hours a week. We wanted to be able to be with them more than not. And so we kind of just wrote a personalized letter and made it less transactional to the seller. And he said that he got an offer that was $50,000 higher. And he told our broker to tell us that he ended up going with our offer specifically because of that letter. Wow. So that's essentially a $50,000 letter. Yeah, exactly. And it probably took you an hour or so to write it or less. So that's... I mean, $50,000 an hour, that's a pretty good return on investment, I'd say. When you were raising the money for the deal, how have you structured that? What is the legal entity around raising the money? And how does that whole process work? Yeah. So syndications, as you start kind of learning about syndications, the majority of them are pretty much structured, very similar. I mean, it's usually an 80-20 split with investors getting 80% of the deal, operators and GPs getting 20% because they're the ones either signing on the loan, getting the financing, raising the capital, acquiring the deal, doing the due diligence, putting up the risk capital, and then managing it throughout the lifetime of the investment distributing communications to the investors on a regular basis. So it is a decent amount of work. There is split, yeah, usually 80-20. You have GPs who are general partners coming in the deals who are kind of operating the deal and then LPs who are limited partners. So these are people who are investing passively in the deal. So basically they're handing over their capital, usually about $50,000 invested in the deal and then they're getting amazing returns. I mean, they're usually getting all of their original investment back within three to five years. So they get that $50,000 back. Plus, it's usually around another $50,000 throughout the lifetime of the investment. So we usually do like 100% return on investment throughout usually five years. So it's like a two times equity return at the end of our investment when we go to exit the property. And that's pretty standard amongst multifamily syndications. I mean, cash flow is around 7 to 9% depending. So those are the numbers that we really look at to get for our investors and creating relationships with our investors. They're really people like in our lives, like friends and family who knew we were getting involved with real estate. 
they trust us, they know what we're doing and want to invest with us. And it gives them the opportunity to diversify their investments. It gives them the opportunity to invest in real estate, which has, I mean, usually better rewards than or returns than any other investment out there. So now they're getting better returns than they would be getting in their stock portfolio or something like that. And it helps diversify for them. So it's a great opportunity for them to get into real estate and not have to do a lot of the heavy lifting. And we do that for them. So it's really a perfect fit. Since we started doing it and we were originally doing it with friends and family, as I started talking about it at work with some of the nurses and doctors I worked with, I just felt that there was so much interest there. I mean, these are busy working professionals who don't have a lot of time to be investing in real estate and doing a lot of like the management, tenants, toilets, that sort of thing, and dealing with all the problems of it. But they were super interested in the syndication model, which allows them to invest in an apartment building. And now they're a part owner in an apartment building. And so then that motivated me to launch the Net Worth Nurse to create really just an educational platform for people to learn more about real estate investing, specifically through multifamily syndication, some of the returns you can get, and really just how easy it is to get started investing in real estate through this specific strategy. Some of the educational resources that you mentioned that you used when you got started, Michael Block, for example, we've had him here on the show. We've had Graham Stephan. A lot of these guys, not necessarily Graham, but specifically Michael, a lot of the syndication people that we've had on the show are doing hundreds of units. And for a lot of people listening, that probably seems out of reach. Even for me, it seems a little bit out of reach. I'm not ready to do a 100-unit apartment building myself. So I think what's really interesting about your story is that you're doing a million-dollar 12-unit, which a million dollars isn't a small amount of money by any means, but it's probably doable for a lot of people that are listening to the show rather than a 100-unit that's 5 10 15 $20 million. So I want to dive into a little bit more of the specifics. When you're forming this syndication structure, what does it typically cost from a legal perspective? How much does it cost for an attorney? And what exactly are they doing for you? And how does all of that piece work? So that is a big price point in doing these syndication deals. And we have had people, even when we did that first 12 unit, a million dollars. Yeah, definitely. That was something we could have potentially JV'd, especially with the amount of capital that we put into it. But we were invested in that coaching program primarily to learn how to syndicate deals. So for us, it was worth it to go into that first deal with the numbers, knowing that we were going to syndicate it so we could learn exactly how the legalities work, how to create those investor relations and distribute the communications and disbursements. Like We wanted to learn that from our first deal. So we calculated those legal fees into the deal from the beginning. And I mean, they vary. We've worked with one lawyer for our first three. We're switching to a different one now just for different reasons. But I think that first one was like maybe $10,000 for legal fees, maybe eight to 10, somewhere around there. Depending on kind of how your lawyer structures it and what entity they're forming, it can vary. But it was worth it for us to go even into that smaller deal doing that. And like you said, it's intimidating to come into syndications and hearing about people. I mean, those people do preach like, go big or go home. Like, why waste your time with a 12 unit when you could be doing an 100 unit? It's the same amount of work, you're getting better returns. And we felt like we kind of knew that, but that just goes to show that you take every advice with a grain of salt and do what works best for you. Like for my husband and I, we had like a couple people 
of close family members who were interested in doing the syndication. So we had an idea of like the capital amount that we had raised and we knew going into it, like, okay, a $1 million price point in the Oregon market, that's going to be a sweet spot for us to do this first deal. And there's not a one path fits all for everyone of getting started in this. There's so many different ways you can structure deals. There's so many different ways you can make it work. So just know that going into it, that you can make your strategy work for you. I realize that every deal and every person's situation is going to be different, like you just mentioned. But what type of legal structure does your attorney typically use for syndication? Are they using an LLC, an S-corp? Is it a partnership? How are they structuring it? Yeah. So we do LLCs. So when we buy the apartment complex, we're forming an entity in the name really just of the apartment complex. I mean, like our first one, Marion Avenue Apartments, LLC. Forming the LLC in the name of that. And then that's how we purchase the building. We've done loans with local credits up to this point. We haven't done any agency debt. So we are signing on the loan. And then we offer a piece of our GP to another investor that's willing to sign on the loan with us. So this is usually someone who maybe wants to get started in multifamily syndications, but doesn't want to sign up for a coaching program. These are kind of the people that are investing in our deals passively, but then we'll give them like maybe 5% of the GP for signing on the loan. And then they get that credibility moving forward, talking to brokers, saying that they GP'd on a deal. So that's kind of how we've gotten creative of structuring these deals and motivating people to sign on the loan with us by giving them this opportunity. And then in terms of the legality, so like our first deal, they did a 504, which you don't really hear about it too much, but that's because we had investors all from the same state. They rely more on state laws as opposed to federal laws with the 504. So it made sense for that first deal to structure it that way. But now moving forward, as we're incorporating investors from a lot of different states, we're switching into the 506B. You mentioned a few minutes ago that the GPs often have to put up the risk capital For those who haven't heard of risk capital, what exactly is that? So not necessarily risk capital. We put up all the risk capital for our own deal. So we're putting earnest money deposit. So when you get a deal under contract, you're submitting over an earnest money deposit. I mean, just to show that you're like taking the deal seriously. So it's a chunk of money that you're putting into escrow with the title agency, just that you're moving through due diligence on this deal. So we put up the earnest money deposit, all the inspector fees, all the due diligence fees. So things that come up in terms of like traveling out to the property to do the inspection, paying the inspector, getting the legal documents up and going. So that's the risk capital. We always put that up front in all our deals. And then what we have for our GPs is they sign on the loan. So now they're a guarantor. To be doing multifamily deals, the financing is a little bit different. You need to have the net worth liquidity in the amount of the building that you're purchasing. So even for that million dollar property, my husband and I just getting started in real estate investing, we didn't have the net worth liquidity to meet the requirements by the credit union for that. So we had one of our investors who was willing to sign on the loan with us. And with us and them combined now net worth liquidity, we did meet the million dollars. So that's kind of how we structure it in terms of the GP really just signing as a guarantor. Another phrase is like a KP, key principal, or a sponsor, someone that has the net worth liquidity on these deals to come in. And then they usually get a portion of the GP for doing that. Let's take a quick break and hear from today's sponsors. Hey guys, the Range Rover Sport leads by example. It's got powerful on-road performance and commanding all-terrain capability and combines assertive on-road performance with the signature Range Rover refinement that you'd expect. 
The third generation Range Rover Sport is the most desirable, advanced, and dynamically capable one yet, and redefines sporting luxury. It's got advanced cabin technologies such as active noise cancellation and cabin air purification, which offer new levels of comfort and refinement. The purposeful cockpit-like driving position sets the tone for a focused interior that promotes exhilarating driver engagement. Award-winning PIVI Pro infotainment is at the heart of the experience and provides intuitive control of the vehicle systems. You can also enjoy a dynamic drive in total comfort with optional 22-way adjustable heated and ventilated electric memory front seats with massage function. Design your Range Rover Sport at LandRoverUSA.com. That's LandRoverUSA.com. Today's show is sponsored by Public.com. That's where you can earn 5.1% APY with a high-yield cash account. While we can't say for certain it's the highest interest rate out there, we can say this. It's a higher rate than Robinhood, a higher rate than SoFi, a higher rate than Marcus, a higher rate than Wealthfront, a higher rate than Betterment, frankly, a higher rate than Capital One, a higher rate than Ally, a higher rate than Barclays, a way higher rate than Bank of America and Chase, a higher rate than Citi, Wells Fargo, Discover, and it's a higher rate than American Express too. So if you want to start earning 5.1% APY on your cash, check out public.com. We can't say it's the highest interest rate, but it's pretty damn up there. This is a paid endorsement for public investing, 5.1% APY as of March 26, 2024, and is subject to change. A high-yield cash account is a secondary brokerage account with public investing member of FINRA-SIPC. Funds from this account are automatically deposited into a partner bank where they can earn a variable interest and are eligible for FDIC insurance. Neither public investing nor any of its affiliates is a bank. US only. Learn more at public.com slash disclosures slash high dash yield dash account. Hey guys, when it comes to financial advice, you've got to trust the source. It's why you listen to this podcast. When I'm looking to upgrade my wallet, I turn to NerdWallet. Their expert team of nerds dives into the details to help you find smarter financial products. Before NerdWallet, I'd pay for vacations with whatever credit card was in my wallet, but I was missing out on miles I didn't even know I was leaving on the table. Now I've got a new card with more miles and more upgrades. What could future you do with more travel rewards? A hotel upgrade? Lounge access? A free flight to a bucket list destination? Wherever you go next, make it happen with a smarter travel credit card. Don't wait to make smart financial decisions. Compare and find smarter credit cards, savings accounts, and much more today at nerdwallet.com. NerdWallet, finance smarter. Check out nerdwallet.com and start making smarter financial decisions. As with all cards, credit is subject to lender approval and terms apply. All right, back to the show. On a million dollar deal, what is the typical risk capital that somebody has to put up? Are we thinking... 5,000, 10,000, or are we talking more like 30, 40, 50,000? Like 30, probably. I forget what the earnest money deposit was. I think it was like maybe 3%. It was like close to maybe $15,000 or so for the earnest money deposit. Then we had to do a good faith deposit for our credit union to get us started on the financials. That was another $5,000. The travel was like $1,000 with flights, getting a rental car. We stayed with my parents, but lodging, that sort of thing. And then the inspector fee, 1000 to 1500 for that. So those are kind of the basic risk capital fees. You mentioned travel, and I'm glad you did because that was one of the things I wanted to ask you about with even going back to your single family properties that you did and your multifamily syndications. Are you traveling to all of these properties when you're buying long distance or are you managing them strictly from a distance? 
So this was all during COVID when this was happening. So travel was a little bit more difficult. For our single family homes that we bought in Georgia, they were new build, brand new. We had an app that they were regularly putting up pictures and videos on. So we could see the whole process of how these were getting built. And then we had an amazing inspector who went in there. Even for a new build townhome, you'd be shocked at the amount of stuff that he found in there. It was insane. But he did a very great job going through it, took all these pictures. We submitted it back to the builder so that they could correct all that stuff. We had a good realtor who was very willing to drive by whenever we needed to. So that was super important for us. And we have never been to Atlanta, Georgia. So we still haven't seen those. It's definitely a priority for us to go over there at one point and see them just to kind of check out the city. So that was those ones for the 12 unit up in Oregon. We were unable to attend the due diligence. So that was something that my dad was able to go to for us. And he did the walkthrough and the inspection on that building. And then after we closed on that one, we did fly up there to see it and walk it and yeah, just visit it in person. And then since then doing these multifamily deals, because you're like, usually walking in every unit and there's just like a lot, it's a way bigger piece. It's definitely essential to be visiting these. A few minutes ago, you also mentioned that you could have potentially JV'd this first Oregon property versus doing a syndication. Before we get into how that might have worked specifically for that deal, explain to us what the difference is between a JV and a syndication. JV or joint venture is going into a deal pretty much with a partner that you're kind of just splitting the pieces of the deal. So with these deals, there's usually four main pieces. So the due diligence risk capital piece of like acquisition, finding the property, acquiring it, going through the due diligence. That's actually kind of two. Finding the deal is like its own separate thing that takes like sometimes months in its own of underwriting. So finding the deal, then acquiring the deal, then asset management. So that's overseeing the management piece and business plan for the property over the lifetime of the investment. So that's a pretty time-consuming piece. That's a big chunk of the project. And then the capital is usually the last piece. So if you're syndicating, that's bringing the capital to the deal. So when you're joint venturing, it's most people develop these relationships strategically with other people who are able to kind of balance out what you're bringing to the deal. So say if I'm going to be finding the deal and I want to run it throughout the lifetime of the investment, it'd be strategic for me to partner with someone who's willing to do the due diligence phase, put up the risk capital, and then also bring the financing and the money to the deal. And then that's kind of how you structure these joint ventures. And this piece was so confusing to us when we first got started. We're like, how do you even begin to have these conversations with people in terms of joint venturing? But now since we've been doing it, it's like, networking and being a part of these masterminds, when you're talking with people, tell them what you're looking for. Tell them what you're doing. Like, hey, we're looking at smaller, mid-sized apartment deals up in Oregon. Like, This is what we can bring to the table. I can bring capital to the table. I have investors ready and willing to invest. I can find the deals. I have a great relationship with a broker. This is what we're willing to bring. And when you have these conversations with people, you start to create relationships where it's like, oh, okay, I can make a strategic partnership work. So that's kind of how we could have potentially done that first deal of like split it. Maybe someone else brought as much capital, splitting the capital piece, and maybe they're willing to asset management. So that's kind of how you structure a joint venture. A syndication is really general partners and limited partners. So there is that piece of people wanting to invest in these deals without doing any work. That's a selling point for these limited partners coming into these deals of them being able to plug in their capital with a vetted out operator who knows what they're doing, someone they trust, who's willing to run this project. 
And so they have a very much passive approach. And these people, the majority of the time, want to be passive. They're looking forward to getting the quarterly disbursement, that check in the mail or in their bank account, and their updates on the financials. Like our passive investors just look forward to that quarter where they get the check and then we give them a video and all our financials and they can see, okay, cool, this is awesome. And then they go back to their work. For my case, it's a lot of doctors and nurses and they're busy doing that and creating income that way. So those kind of are, I guess, structured in a way where there's the general partners who, like I said before, kind of have like 20% of the deal, 80% are to the limited partners. And then the operators are solely responsible for all those pieces I mentioned before, finding the deal, acquiring the deal, doing the due diligence risk capital, bringing all the capital to the deal, raising the money for the deal, and then managing it throughout the lifetime of the investment. In addition to your 20% as the GPs, do you collect the management fee? It depends on the deal. So we've structured our deals very differently. I mean, that first deal, we didn't take an acquisition fee just because we were getting in it with like really close family and friends. So we didn't feel like we needed to do that. And we had a big chunk of money invested in it. So that one, we took like, I think a 3% asset management fee that we do collect monthly, but in our case, like quarterly, because that's how our disbursements work. For the second deal, we did take like a 1% acquisition fee and no asset management fee on that one. So it just really depends on how the deal looks and how the numbers work for investors. We'll kind of structure it differently. When I first got started in real estate, I struggled with limiting beliefs. Limiting beliefs actually held me back from starting to even study real estate because I never thought that I could do it. I thought it was only for the rich. What were some of the limiting beliefs when you were getting started in real estate and how have you overcome them? This is something like the mindset piece was something that I have just been really strongly doing for myself. Like since I graduated high school, college, like me, it was like law of attraction. Think and Grow Rich was like one of the most life changing books that I've ever read because I was reading it at a point when I was graduating from college. And that really just changed my mindset of like, I can do anything. There is nothing I can't achieve if I put my mind to it. And that, mindset piece is so instrumental in like everything that I've done since and especially with real estate. I mean, for me, that was a big piece in getting started in nursing of applying for jobs that I didn't have any experience for and growing and climbing the leadership ladder and moving into administration as a nurse with no supervisor experience and now supervising and overseeing huge teams within a hospital and healthcare system like That is a huge mindset piece for me of being able to kind of overcome those barriers of you thinking that you're not qualified to do it. And when it came into real estate, I mean, that was a huge hurdle for me of even launching my brand when my husband and I were wanting to start this real estate business. And at first, we were thinking of strategically partnering with other capital raisers. But then as we started learning more about it, we were like, okay, we need to build a brand. Like We need a platform to stand on with our educational material. And as I started researching kind of like how to do this and what other people were doing, I was like, wow, there's already doctors out there doing what I'm doing. Like, There's already big, well-known doctors who are doing like syndications and appealing to medical professionals. Like, there's no room for me in the space. And that was like a big hurdle that I had to jump over, like thinking like there was already too many people out there doing it. I didn't fit in, like total imposter syndrome. And it really just kind of came down to like definitely the support of my husband. And then really talking to other real estate professionals who are such entrepreneurial mindset, super positive people. Like when I launched the net worth nurse, like 
ironically, I didn't get a lot of support from like my friends and family, but in the real estate community, like the overwhelming support from the people of like, oh my God, this brand's amazing. This is so cool. I love what you're doing. Like just that networking within the real estate community itself was like so empowering and encouraging and Another piece of the mindset was like listening to podcasts and listening to people's stories, going on bigger pockets and listening to all these people making it work was so inspiring for me. And that's a huge motivation for me now coming on and doing these podcasts because I hope sharing my story of like working full time, being super invested in my nursing career, having two young children, and I'm still making it work, like to give other people the motivation of like, oh, cool, like I can do it too. So, I mean, that's the huge piece. Even though you've done deals and you've come a long way from, your limiting beliefs, do you still struggle with them today? And do you still find yourself being stressed when doing deals or even questioning your abilities to do what you're doing? Definitely. Yes. And I know it comes with like launching a brand and putting yourself out there. But I mean, like some of the feedback and comments I've gotten on my stuff, like haven't always been super positive. I mean, for instance, I was doing this video, I put something on my Instagram page about like, me talking about kind of alternative investment strategies, not solely focusing on your 401k, me giving the personal example of me pulling from my retirement to start investing in real estate. And I had someone close in my life who watched the video and was like, you're giving bad financial advice. You shouldn't be telling people to pull from their 401k, especially with an employer matched program that most employers have, like people should be investing in it. And it was just the comments were taken so out of context. And for someone to tell me like I'm giving bad financial advice, like definitely it did like sting a bit in terms of, wow, like, do I need to rethink what I'm doing? But like, you know, I always give disclaimers when I talk to my investors, especially a lot of people have tax questions and I always tell them to consult with their tax professional or they need to like advise with other people in their lives in terms of finances, stuff like that. So I mean, there are situations like that that come up. You know, I've had someone blast my website and saying like all this stuff that was wrong with it. So It'll happen. I don't think that ever goes away, but it's just like I mentioned, take it with a grain of salt and keep going. Stay true to you. Like I'm definitely genuine to myself and I take comfort in that. Yeah, that's one of the hardest things about putting yourself out there is you know, when you go into putting yourself out there and creating content that you're probably going to have quote unquote haters, if you will. And it's one thing to know it's coming. And then when it actually happens, it's like, oh, wow, that actually, you know, hurts a little bit more than you expected it to. And it's the same no matter what. You're doing as long as you're putting content out there, those people are going to exist, and it's definitely a hard piece. I mean, it happens with this podcast all the time Instagram, social media, Twitter, it doesn't matter what it is, they're everywhere. You're doing everything that we've discussed so far while working what I would consider to be a demanding full time job, especially during a global pandemic, while also having a family with two daughters. How do you manage your time? How are you able to be successful in all of these different areas of life? Good question. I mean, I have daily habits that really motivate me and energize me. Like, I'm big on meditating. I do daily juices. I work out. So, for me, that health piece that comes first is like so imperative to everything I do. Like, by meditating and eating good and juicing and exercising, like, I always feel good. I mean, not always, but I'm usually always like feeling good and have good energy to get stuff done. So that's like the first and foremost piece. And then the mindset of, like I mentioned, constantly educating yourself, reading books, feeling inspired and motivated. I still listen to podcasts all the time. So that's another piece. And then being specific on our goals. Like we are so 
strongly focused on our why and where we want to be in five years and what we want to achieve out of life. And when we get stuck or overcome a hurdle or an obstacle and we feel discouraged, like, yeah, taking a break and having the life balance of being able to like kind of come to yourself or step away if you need to and focus on something else, like being able to prioritize in that sense, but then coming back with like even more motivation and inspiration to keep working towards goals in life. Like that's huge for me. How has having a supporting husband impacted your real estate? What has it been like building a real estate business with a spouse? That's huge. I mean, honestly, I couldn't imagine doing it without him just because, well, the amount of time that we spend on it first off, like when we put our daughters to bed, we're really grinding through our real estate. So if I was sitting at a computer on my laptop, doing that for like three to four hours every night and he wasn't like, it'd probably feel a little unbalanced. And that's not to say like, we're totally obsessed with it. I mean, like if we're hanging out in our office and like both of us on our computers doing stuff, like we'll take a break and talk about other things or do different things, you know, in the meantime, like play a game of dominoes, like (laughs) take a break and that sort of stuff. So we have the balance piece, but like having each other to bounce off of on the goal piece. I mean, it's just kind of like raising kids and being in a marriage. Like if you feel that the work or the relationship is unbalanced and you're contributing more to your partner, I think it'd be very difficult to move through this. But then also the encouragement and support that I got, like when I launched my brand, I mean, when that instance happened yesterday where I had someone hating on me, like just being able to like vent to my husband about that and him to like encourage me and just like be the sounding board for me in our relationship and throughout our business, like that piece has been so huge. When you think back on your life, whether it be personally or investing related, what piece of advice have you received that has really had an impact on you and you continue to use it and think of it to this day? I would say getting the mindset piece first. I mean, that has been so imperative. And the people that I hear that either don't get started in real estate investing or drop out or quit, like it almost always comes down to mindset. So I'm a strong believer that if you have that mindset piece like nailed down, that you can really achieve anything. And that's by going out there and reading all these like cheesy books that everyone recommends, like The Law of Attraction, like Think and Grow Rich, like. I read You're a Badass at Making Money, Crushing It by Gary Vee. Like Tony Robbins, it's huge for me. Like these self help gurus that are out there. I mean, I used to feel like so cheesy and like almost embarrassed to admit that I was like consuming so much self help stuff, but it has really just changed my life in terms of like me feeling capable and able to achieve my goals. That piece is huge. Savannah, thanks for joining me on the show today. For those listening that are interested in learning more and might want to connect with you, where is the best place for them to go? Yeah, you can find me under the Net Worth Nurse on all social media handles. So that's Facebook, LinkedIn, YouTube, Instagram. My website's The Net Worth Nurse. You can email me at Savannah at The Net Worth Nurse. And I love connecting with other people. If you're remotely interested in anything that I've been saying, please reach out to me. I would love to connect. I'll be sure to put a link to your website and a couple of your popular social media channels in the show notes below for anyone that is interested in connecting with you. Savannah, thanks so much. Awesome. Thank you. All right, guys. That's all I had for this week's episode of Real Estate Investing. I'll see you again next week. Thank you for listening to TIP. Make sure to subscribe to We Study Billionaires by the Investors Podcast Network. Every Wednesday, we teach you about Bitcoin, and every Saturday, we study billionaires and the financial markets. To access our show notes, transcripts, or courses, go to theinvestorspodcast.com. This show is for entertainment purposes only. 
Before making any decision, consult a professional. This show is copyrighted by the Investors Podcast Network. Written permission must be granted before syndication or rebroadcasting.